spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Super Light Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com. Code SUPER24. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Today, we have Arun from Ops Lab, which we are lucky to talk to him because he has the automated scheduler, the scheduler that I've been talking about that they have been attempting to create since the 80s, and Arun thinks he's uh, he's cracked the case on this one. So, Arun, thanks for being here, and uh, so go ahead and give us your background, kind of tell us about yourself and the, the company you're working for. Yeah, thank you, Veda. Thank you for inviting me. This is really exciting. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is Arun Nair. I'm the founder of Ops Lab. Uh, Ops Lab is a small business based out of Austin, Texas. Uh, we specialize in air logistics optimization. Uh, so we primarily work with commercial airlines and we help them with routing their planes. We help them schedule their pilots and flight attendants. And we also work in cargo optimization. Uh, and we are also working with the Air Force. We are very fortunate to work on this uh, effort that we just mentioned about automated squadron scheduling. Nice. Well, the uh, so how did you guys get into it? Obviously, uh, Arun and I have talked a few times before uh, in uh, my previous life. But how did you end up finding yourself at Ops Lab and then also finding yourself uh, working in the DoD space? Yeah, yeah. I can give you the longer version of the story. Uh, so I started working in uh, fintech. Uh, I spent about 11 years working on the Wall Street. I worked for large uh, sell-side banks, uh, connecting them to the exchange. So all the trade execution were performed on the platforms that we built. Uh, and it was all uh, algorithmic trading. So essentially, the traders would establish the rules of operation, and we executed the trades automatically between the bank and the exchange. So I come from the background of building large enterprise software applications, managing large sets of data. And my co-founder, Sujeev, uh, after he did his PhD in operation research, we actually both went to the same grad school in Texas A&M about 15 years ago. I feel pretty old now. Uh, so, uh, so yeah, after his uh, PhD, he, he worked in airline operations. Uh, so he was essentially looking at the problems around how to manage the disruptions, uh, scheduling disruptions that airlines face daily. You know, So there's one thing about building a plan for your planes and your crew and your cargo, but the, but the things never go as per the plan, as you know, and, and with an Air Force as well, right? So he was looking mainly at the problem of how to react to those disruptions that are happening in the schedule. Uh, so he built a lot of algorithms around that. Uh, so three years ago, we joined forces. Uh, I brought my experience of building large enterprise applications, and he built his expertise in designing these algorithms to handle uh, schedule disruptions for the airline operations. Uh, so because of that, we started our journey uh, focusing on the airline operations. Uh, so that's how we spent first two years of our journey. And then in 2020, uh, I think it was like fall of 2020, we got connected to the Air Force leadership through this program called Small Business Innovation Research. So it was uh, in phase one <clears throat> that we got the chance to showcase our technology that we had built for the airlines to manage their operations. Uh, we showed that technology to the leadership in Air Force. 
And it was specifically this team in uh, MIT AI Accelerator. That's a initiative by Air Force, where there's a joint collaboration between MIT and AI uh, Air Force to look at the uh, machine learning AI initiatives and see areas in Air Force that they can actually apply those learnings. So they actually introduced us to the leadership at 56 Spider-Man at Luke Air Force Base. And they basically made the connection and said they actually looked at all of our work, the MIT AI team. Uh, and it's the same team that built Pugboard. Uh, that's another application that's uh, being used for scheduling of squadrons. And uh, when 56 Fighter Wing was working with MIT AI team, they learned that the use case for fighter uh, squadron scheduling is very different. And that's why uh, they made the connection to us. And that's how we got started. And that led us to move into phase two of SBIR program. And that's when Luke uh, and 56 Spider Wing took the lead of kind of shepherding us through phase two. Uh, and that started in August of 2021. And right now we are finishing phase two, where the objective is to build this application to automate the squadron scheduling. So that's kind of been the journey so far. Yeah, that's pretty, pretty great. And I would say a lot of companies have somewhat of a similar experience. You know, yeah. they get into the space with a phase one and then they get in that customer discovery. They find a customer, they get into yeah. a phase two. Uh, and so I think one thing that's kind of exciting, which I believe is relatively recent news and I'll let you speak to it. Uh, but that phase two to the phase three is always a big, uh, yeah. big hurdle. So, uh, how did you? How did you? How did your company and organization kind of handle that challenge? And then, what what kind of updates do you have for everybody uh, with your progress? Yeah, so I'll start with the first part regarding phase two. Uh, I have to say a lot of credit has to go to the end users. So we got the chance to work with about three wings uh, bases very actively. So first was Luke Air Force Base. Second was Holloman. So you were our point of contact there. And we were also working with Davis Mountain and Shepard. And I have to say, while talking to other companies uh, that are also in this ecosystem, going through Cyber Phase 2, a lot of times they complain about the lack of interaction with the end user. They feel they are not getting enough feedback from the end users, or they're not getting that, that drive. In this case, the end users are extremely motivated. Uh, I'm sure you are also aware of it. Uh, but I have to say, we were extremely happy to see that engagement and see the push come from the end users. And that has been a big uh, factor contributing to the success of phase two. Uh, they were uh, involved all the way from the schedulers who are working in each of the squadron, all the way up to wing command, and even the uh, contractors who are working on the on the system of record, which is GPIMS for you. The contractors are extremely supportive. They all feel this is a very critical project. That's uh, something that needs to be addressed. And that has been a big reason for uh, for the success. And from our side, we were able to leverage a lot of algorithms that we had built for the commercial airlines. So we were also not starting from scratch. So we were able to repurpose a lot of the work that we had already done in, in the past uh, two years with the airlines. So those were the two big reasons why our phase two journey was pretty uh, pretty successful, and uh, that's and the other part is we did get uh, approved for phase three, which is a prime contract that we have now with Luke Air Force Base, and that is for essentially rolling out this platform for sustainment at Luke for four squadrons. Uh, two of the squadrons are F sixteen MDS, and the other two are F thirty five MDS. And the contract is currently to kind of a trial, sustain it for a year and prove that this platform can actually do what it's supposed to do. That's really cool. Yeah. So the, uh, so one of the, one of the things let's, let's kind of dive into the process or the problem set. So mm -hmm. I'll let you kind of give your example or kind of explain what the automated squadron scheduler is attempting to do. And yeah. then I'll kind of give the background of, hey, what are the pilots doing uh, currently? Yeah, absolutely. So essentially the problem is all around scheduling these squadron operations. Uh, if you're looking at a, a FTU base like Luke or Holloman, they have all these students who are going through uh, syllabus execution for uh, their FTU programs. 
And that usually involves three kinds of events that they have to go through in their syllabus. They have to first go through academic lectures, then they have to go through simulator sessions, and they have to then go and fly real sorties for whatever MDS and, and the course that they're executing. The scheduling of academics and sims portion is not that complicated. However, when it comes to scheduling the sorties, it is an extremely complicated uh, process. You have a lot of attributes that you have to orchestrate to successfully run the uh, schedule. You have to think about the syllabus events because it's a very well-structured syllabus events. The students have to go through prereqs and then they are qualified to attend the next uh, mission or event. We have to look at the airspace allocation. That itself is a very complicated requirement where uh, a specific mission requires a specific air range to be effective. So you have to make sure you have the right airspace scheduled. You have to work with maintenance and work with the turn patterns that has been committed by the maintenance. And only then you can schedule those. You also have to work with maintenance team on the SCL weapon configuration. So every mission has their own specific SCL configurations. Uh, you have to look at the qualification of the instructor pilots. So if you are teaching a specific event, there are some currencies and qualifications that have to be active. So if you think about all these attributes, it's a lot to manage. And unfortunately, the current state of affairs is all of it is done manually by a team of schedulers. And that's comprised of usually a director of operations of the squadron. And they usually have about two or three civilian schedulers. Uh, and then they usually also have two or three instructor pilots. These are fully qualified fighter pilots sitting in the scheduling shop, at least on an average spending 10 to 15 hours a week. So if you think about the amount of manpower that goes in and building the schedule and then reflowing the schedule is, is a huge waste of uh, manpower. And that's the, that's the kind of the, the main crux of the problem we're trying to solve is how can we automate this whole process where we are first building the schedule for the long range. So we are building the schedule for next two or three months based on looking at all the students that are flowing through your squadron. And then more importantly, focus on the reflows. And that's where our company's main uh, expertise comes into play, where we can look at a disruption, which could be a maintenance cancellation, or it could be a student hooking the ride, or it could be a weather-related cancellation. How do you reflow the entire week's schedule while also respecting the priorities set by the director of operations? Because it's not as simple as saying, okay, let's just fly the next student. You always have to look at the priority set by the DO to make sure you're going in the right direction and all the resources are getting uh, utilized for the right objectives. So our algorithms are focusing on disruptions a lot, managing the reflows for the squad and scheduling alone. And that's kind of the, the main crux of the problem. <clears throat> yeah, and so to kind of give some, some context and just uh, help people kind of understand. So uh, at least for the F-16, We've got, uh, like Arun was saying, some SCLs, so we call them SCALs. It's it's your configuration, so it's, hey, is this air-to-air -air configured? Can I do dogfighting in this, or can I do air-to-ground in it? Does it have a targeting pod? All those kind of things go into it, so it's not as simple as this jet isn't broken, so I can go use it. It's like, whoa, 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 is that jet configured correctly so I can use it? In addition, one thing you said previously I thought was uh, – very appropriate. You said, man, we have so much end user buy-in. And like we started the podcast because this is like a 50 year long problem set that people are like, I desperately want a solution. So every, the, the first time everybody hears about it, they think, well, hopefully this is the one because we've heard, you know, it's the problem solved before, but then people actually hear one, your background with dealing with uh, disruptions in the private sector. So you already understand that our flying schedule is wrought with disruptions. Like it has yeah. probably more disruptions than correct beginning to end uh, execution. Uh, so I think that's why everyone was so interested in participating and providing input and being helpful and kind of pushing it to the next level because we knew how big of a game changer this program could be. So I'll give like a quick rundown on uh, Arun talked about what his program is doing. I'll tell you how many hands go in to now make 
do what the program can do, but how many different people. So he said there's multiple contractors involved that are, their sole job is to build schedules, build shells. So what our turn pattern is, how many planes we're flying, what our takeoff and land times are. Uh, so there's contractors that do that. Then there's military members who actually oversee that and then actually throw individuals into each sorties and schedule upgrades. And that's just in scheduling. And then, like he said, the director of operation is kind of overseeing all this. Uh, but then beyond them, we have an entire shop called the training shop. And the training shop job is literally to manage and track training because these programs are supposed to track training. But the problem is that training, think of it as in a raw data, we have the training information. But scheduling doesn't want to get that data in a raw data form. They want it in something that's more digestible. So we have a whole shop that's normally one to two people who just boil down the training information to, hey, scheduling, these are your five or six things that you need to look for when it comes to pilot currencies. Because if someone hasn't flown a certain mission type in so many days, they need they can't lead it or they need an instructor to make them current and qualified. Uh, so then you have these limitations. So it's not just airplanes. It's not just weathers. It's not just turn patterns. It's not just airspace. It's also what are our pilots availabilities? What's their currencies? Uh, so we have a training shop that does that. And then we have a standards and evaluation shop, which runs everyone's check rides. And all of these things are managed by different people. So it's, it's, uh, it becomes very, a very large problem affecting everyone in the squadron when the schedule isn't done well. Uh, so that's why I think so many people want this to be uh, successful and and kind of go places. Some of the things, having seen the program uh, in the past, and uh, Stinger was actually on the podcast a couple weeks ago uh, talking about the disruptions parts and the reflow. And so can you kind of talk to what it's looking at and what it's providing to people. So, hey, today we had weather cancellations. What does that do to tomorrow? And what does the automated scheduler do to alleviate that problem? Yeah, uh, so I can take a, a simple example to explain the scenario. Uh, so let's say that a student uh, is, is flying today and uh, based on the completion, successful completion of today's sortie, they have uh, consecutive uh, events on the syllabus that could be uh, doing a sim on Thursday or flying the next event, next uh, sortie on Friday. But the completion of today's event is critical for that, right? So uh, it just so happens that the student hooks the ride. Uh, he, he did not uh, effectively clear that mission. In that case, currently the schedulers have to look at the entire week schedule and somehow make sure the student can fly again sometime before the Thursday event, right? That way he's, he's able to keep proceeding forward. Uh, so in order to do that, you have to steal someone else's flying. So they usually go and sacrifice an instructor pilot who may be flying uh, for continuous training, or they might uh, down prioritize some other student who may not be a critical student to graduate on time. Uh, so it's all about looking at what DO is, uh, the DO is thinking about prioritization of all the resources, right? So it involves looking at the whole week schedule and kind of rebuilding the entire week schedule while looking at all these prioritization of who needs to graduate first on time and so and so, right? Now, if you think about how a human scheduler has to do all of this, they have to look at the whole schedule and literally involve sometimes rebuilding the entire week schedule, which could take 10 to 20 hours, right? And then the DO has to go approve it. What we are trying to do is essentially use these algorithms that can look at the DO's objective. We always start with that. What is DO trying to do? Is he trying to uh, make sure these few students graduate on time? So our system allows you to kind of configure that. For every student, you can lock the graduation date, right? So that allows the solver to kind of work backwards and make sure that if the student that hooked the ride uh, today, if he was a high priority student, then we will ensure that he gets to refly again before the next event on Thursday. We will make sure that he gets to you know, uh, refly again. Uh, and that might involve, again, displacing uh, an instructor pilot who may be flying a CT, uh, sorry, or uh, displacing another student who is lower in the priority, priority list that's given by the DO. Right? So we build the entire week schedule 
trying to minimize the number of changes because while we are building the schedule to optimize the resource utilization, we're also trying to make sure the work-life balance for the pilots is not disturbed, right? So you don't want to create a very jerky week schedule for the for the pilots where they don't know what they're flying tomorrow. That's kind of something we would like to avoid all the time as well. So what the goal of the solver is always to look at the DO's objective, prioritize flying for, for the high priority students while maintaining the work-life balance for the for the pilots. And we look at all three schedule events. So we look at their academics, sims, and sortie events because they all are tied together based on the syllabus flow. So we reflow all three event types for the entire squadron. And uh, as far as the performance is concerned, it takes us less than five minutes to build a full uh, squadron schedule. Uh, and the volume is pretty small because usually every squadron has 20 to 25 tails on an average. Uh, so managing the reflows takes less than five minutes for the solver. Well, it's kind of funny when you think, in, you know, in, in a fighter squadron who in in the Air Force, at least F-16s, they actually put out a lot of lines. You know, not all yeah. fighters are putting out 12 turn 10s. Uh, so we think, hey, man, that's a that's a lot of airplanes moving in one day. Yeah. Uh, but having worked in the private sector yeah. with commercial airlines, you're like, you're you're flying 20 airplanes in one day and they all take off and land at the same location like that's yeah. pretty easy but we have our own set of issues to deal with i guess no really you're absolutely right but on the commercial airline side our customer for example right now has uh, we work with republic airways that's the customer we have on in north america and they fly close to thirty-two thousand flights a month and they have about seven thousand <laughs> pilots and flight attendants and we look at their reflows and for them on an average if there are let's say 20 or 30 cancellations that usually impacts 80 to 100 crew members we are able to resolve disruptions of that magnitude in less than 12 minutes that's kind of where it lasts uh, but i have to say uh, for squadron scheduling you have wider sets of uh, variables that are impacting the scheduling uh, so that makes it gives you a different you know, uh, level of complication. Yeah, because you think, you know, they are pretty much all aside from very few kind of the initial qual flights yeah. for those pilots yeah. and yeah. Uh, uh, stewardesses. Uh, yeah. They they that's their limitation. It's availability. And then, hey, pretty much everybody's qualified in that exactly. aircraft. It's just are they geographically located or can they get there? And they have an entire fleet of people who are kind of sitting reserve who are ready to kind of fill in where in the, in the operations squadrons, there's, there's just not a, Hey, there's 12 people sitting just waiting yeah. for you to call and let them know that, you know, they got picked up. So uh, we'll kind of shift gears real quick. So yeah. kind of two questions, just a, uh, one is where do you feel you kind of got the most, bang for your buck or made the most impact with contacting people and getting the word out there about your program. Mm -hmm. And then two, kind of how much are you traveling kind of in this industry? You know, I know COVID probably put a damper on it, but yeah. you know, getting out there, kind of talking to people, what, it, what does that look like for you? So the first piece I would say the stock cell initiatives at each of these uh, wings and bases, that's been extremely helpful. So we got the opportunity to work with some spark cell leads like uh, Captain uh, Leslie Reed and yourself. And we have similar point of contacts at other bases like Shepherd and Davis Mountain. And the network of spark cell leads is pretty strong. Uh, the good thing is if, if we are working with Luke and if they like our work and if the spark cell lead is tracking that initiative, then they are pretty good at communicating that in, in your ecosystem of Sparksell leads. And that has, I feel, been the most impactful uh, way of getting the word out about our efforts. Um, yeah, and uh, as far as the travel is concerned, I am traveling a, a lot right now. Uh, we are right now essentially traveling to all the bases that have shown interest in potentially working with us uh, so that the process usually involves showing them the product virtually first on Zoom. And usually they invite their schedulers and they usually 
we'll keep it limited to the uh, the instructor pilots who are actively involved in in the process. And if they like the demo, then they invite us to the base for in-person visit. And that's when they invite the wing leadership. And then that's when we kind of do the full demo of the application, kind of do a one day long workshop with them, understand their exact requirements. Uh, most of them are different, flying different MDS. They are not flying F-16 or F-35. That's what the platform is originally configured for. So that workshopping helps us a lot to understand the requirement. Uh, so yeah, we are traveling a fair amount, going to all these uh, bases like we were in Minot Air Force Base a couple of weeks ago in North Dakota, or going down to Albuquerque area for uh, Holloman. So yeah, uh, definitely it's been it's been a fun fun phase actually. Yeah, that's a it was a good call going to Minot in the summer. I hear the winters are rough <laughs> out there. Yeah, yeah, I, I hear the, that too. Uh, <laughs> So one of the, one of the things that I had, well, actually, before we get to that, how, how was it? So you went out to Minot, I assume you were talking with the B-52s up there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how was it, how did it differ? So now we have, so F-16s, uh, you have a pilot yeah. and then you have maybe an IP or an instructor pilot sitting mm-hmm. in the back seat when you're at the that. formal training course. Mm-hmm. But now you go to the B-52 and you've got a pilot, you've got a co-pilot, you've got a nav, you have a uh, WISO, so weapon systems yeah. operator, uh, and then maybe one more. But so how is that? They're flying less lines, but how is that from your perspective? Yeah, we got a chance to uh, uh, actually play with their simulators. So we got a chance to see all these positions that you mentioned. Uh, it was actually a really good experience trying to, getting to understand what they go through. Uh, so basically, yeah, Vedo, you nailed it. Uh, our biggest uh, customization effort for every new MDS is all about the crew positions, right? So when we move from commercial airline to uh, F-16, for commercial airlines, you usually have a pilot and a, and a first officer in, in the cockpit, and then you have flight attendants. You may have four flight attendants, sometimes six, depending on the size of the airplane. Uh, and when we moved to F-16, we had to deal with just single-seater C model or double-seater D models. Now, as we are expanding to B-52, we have to now expand the crew positions to handle all these positions that you mentioned. So that's that's kind of the biggest lift for us as we go from one MDS to the next. However, if we are going from uh, one base to another, However, if they're both flying the same MDS that we have already configured, then it is a lot easier journey for us. So for example, going mm-hmm. from Loop to Holloman, since they both fly F-16s, is a much easier journey. When we go to Minot, or we are also working with Kirtland for C-130s, even theirs it will require uh, different crew positions for us. Uh, would you say, I would assume, <laughs> as a, in, in my ignorance, I would assume that having more crew positions with more mission types uh, is much more difficult than just having a different MDS. So say, you, hey, I'm an F-16 base, now I move to a A-10 base. That's probably much more similar yeah. than saying, hey, now I have five variables or C-17s exactly. or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. However, the good thing so is once the, you one scale the, up to uh, B-52 use case where you have to deal with at least five to six positions and you may have up to like 10 pilots in the same uh, sort of crew formation. Uh, moving to C-130s will not be that difficult because their positions are not very different. They are different, but because we are already scaling up to you know five or seven different types of positions, that, that migration should not be that difficult. Yeah, I respect that. You said, just give us the most difficult problem set out the gate. And we'll fi- if we can figure that out, we can get all the rest. Uh, did you get a check out? I've always imagined, I've never been in a B-52, uh, at least while it's flying. I've uh, I've always imagined, imagined like the Wizzo is just like listening to radio and clicks and beeps and stuff. And they're like, yeah. oh, that's what that radio frequency is. Is that what they did in the yeah. sim? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But it's a, it's a very yeah. <laughs> interesting position. I mean, they are strategizing so much. It's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I'd say one thing, you know, I have the I have the benefit of kind of being my or being by myself in the airplane, yeah. uh, which the crew coordination is non-existent. It's either I yeah. do it or I don't. Uh, but working across other aircraft. So there's, you know, 
one one of my friends or three of my friends with me uh, in a four four ship formation is uh, you know that's where our coordination comes yeah. in. But you think trying to execute in one of those big airplanes and coordinate with everybody and everybody be on the same uh, same page is is uh, is probably a challenge in and of itself. We always joke yeah. in the in the single seat community. We, uh, we refer to things as SA or situational awareness. And yeah. you say, uh, you can, there's only a hundred percent SA. So either one person has it all, or you just divide that amongst the people in the airplane. And, uh, which is not a good thing. Cause like, Oh, cool. I have 12% of the SA, uh, probably making some enemies today. Yeah. The, uh, so one question, one question I have, uh, which I think is on a lot of people's minds because yeah. I've had this conversation over and over and over is funding. So what happened? Because one of our conversations right before I left was, man, funding's tough. So what what transpired? And I don't know how much you can talk about, but sure. what happened that all of a sudden there were there were funds available? Yeah, so definitely for most companies going through cyber phase two, this is a very common theme that it's called the value of debt. It's a very common terminology these days where the companies will prove the viability of the product by delivering the phase two and then there's usually not funding secured for sustaining sustainment of the application right that's kind of allows you to succeed in that uh, in our case we uh, we also are kind of going through the same journey where uh, we are working kind of bottom-up approach right we are working with squadrons initially rather than working directly with the matchcom and coming down so uh, right now we are basically trying to work with the AFWorks funding for phase two that allowed us to build a minimum viable product that we are launching this fall. And then we are relying on squadron innovation funds. That's one source of uh, funding that we are kind of banking on. So as we are working with each of these uh, wings, uh, some of the squadrons are able to come up with some squadron innovation funds. They are usually not big checks. They are small checks. Uh, so that that's helping us. Uh, Luke was able to secure a prime contract for us for sustainment of this application for a year. So that contract was uh, awarded just this month. And that it gives us some uh, runway to at least prove the model for next one year for day-to-day -day use case, right? It's not simulation. It's not working on testing. It's actually scheduling the real sorties for both F-16 and F-35. Uh, and that was one good source of funding we were able to secure. And the other one is, in fact, just this morning, we got the confirmation of this, uh, is, a, is a new initiative called Momentum Fund. And this is started by uh, the chief of, uh, of Air Force, CSAF. Uh, this fund is essentially to help drive the success of these smaller initiatives that are started by these squadrons, right? So it's similar to CIF, uh, where there is uh, some funding given to essentially accelerate the deployment and sustainment of uh, such uh, initiatives. So we were able to secure some of the funding as part of Momentum Fund uh, for two use cases. One is to prove that this can also be used for ACC. Uh, so we are saying that this platform can not only help with the pilot training, FTU and UPT use case, but also help with your continuous training readiness awareness program and mission readiness as well. So we have uh, been asked to prove this for ACC uh, Matchcom. And also the third Matchcom that we're working with is uh, the Global Strike Command. Uh, and that's where Minor comes in. So we will be proving this application can also work for the third Matchcom. Uh, so the goal is to prove this for ATC while working with Luke and Holloman and such. Uh, work with ACC, and we are planning to work with Davis Monson for that, and then work with Global Strike Command and prove this with Minot. So the Momentum Fund that just got approved this morning will help us with the uh, rollout of these two additional bases. Yeah, I feel like uh, I can't help but think it was uh, it was my input complaining about how there's not sustainment funding. So the yeah. CSAF must listen to this podcast. Yeah. That's all the no, that's 100%. all the confirmation I need. Yeah. <laughs> The, uh, so one of, one of the things I have a question, we've talked about this offline previously. Um, so why do you think some companies and how do you think some companies start at the top? 
How do you yeah. think these companies walk in the door and go straight to COMAC, so the commander of ACC, and have a meeting and they get funding versus everyone else has to go SIBR 1, SIBR 2, uh, and then hope for a SIBR 3? I honestly don't know that. Uh, I'm assuming the companies <laughs> that are going directly to the leadership at Matchcom are larger contractors. Uh, if you're a smaller company like ourselves, you're likely going through cyber phase one, phase two, where you're likely not starting from the top at the, at the Matchcom headquarters level. You're likely starting from you know uh, bottom of which. So I honestly don't know how, uh, if you were a small company, how could you directly start with uh, working with the leadership? Well, I think that was one of the things, uh, you know, I maybe it's my subconscious, but I feel like I randomly just plug my own podcast on my podcast, but that's fine. Uh, I think that was one of the things that I was frustrated about was there would be companies that are making good products, are doing good work, are making progress and making good on the contract that the Air Force asked yeah. them to do. And then nobody would know about them. And I heard, uh, I heard a story uh, about, uh, I, th I believe it was you actually, that was at a conference and you were like, hey, this is our program. We can't seem to get funding. And then like half the audience stood up and was like, we would like that too. Yeah. Uh, but they didn't know about it. They didn't know it yeah. existed. Right. And you're like, man, I would, I would love for there to be some way because, you, you know, Spark Cells, everybody has their story of how a Collider event or something like that yeah. or Spark Cells got the word out. Mm -hmm. But obviously, it's very apparent that it's it's not a broad enough uh, spectrum of, of deployment of information because yeah. people still don't know. A, a lot of people who would want this program uh, still don't know about it. So what yeah. do you think? Do you think there's stuff out there that I'm unaware of or do you think... Uh, that is kind of a, a gap in the development? No, I think Vader, things like these uh, innovation work groups that are conducted across uh, these wings, those are really good, uh, good areas for companies like ourselves who are executing cybers. If they can get participation to those workshops, those are really good ones uh, because we usually have subject matter experts from the end user side, attend those workshops. And you also have uh, other uh, technology leaders from within the Air Force also attend those workshops. So if, if uh, companies like us get the uh, invite to these workshops, then they actually prove to be very beneficial uh, in spreading the word about okay. uh, the initiatives and uh, if there are any conversations about funding. Uh, so that, that definitely helps a lot. And then, so can who who kind of hosts those? Where are they held? Kind of kind of give people if they're looking to attend one of these. Where where would they find that? So usually these are again through SparkCell. Uh, we get the invite because the SparkCell leads are usually connected very well. Uh, but there are there is one team in Tucson called ArcWorks A R C W E R X. They're like ArcWorks, but you know. Uh, and they host some really good uh, innovation work groups uh, focusing on uh, uh, the, the Tucson, Luke, Phoenix area. So a lot of uh, bases actually attend those workshops. We recently were invited uh, to attend a workshop in Orlando uh, that was focusing purely on pilot training uh, operations. So a lot of folks focusing on VR and AR uh, were invited and that's where we also got a chance to talk about our efforts. Uh, so essentially, for for us, it's still happening through Spark Cell leads. That's again, I, I know I'm going back to that. Uh, but eventually, if we are able to get participation into these uh, innovation workshops, they help a lot. Well, that's good. That's good to hear that 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 opportunity is out there for companies. Cause yeah. I think that's one of the things a lot of people struggle with is, is getting some exposure out there and, and showing off the yeah. good things that they're doing. Uh, what would, what would you say, uh, kind of the perks of the gig? What would you say one of your, your favorite experiences or trips has been, uh, to one of these locations? I think hands down visiting the bases. I, I really enjoy that going and taking a tour of uh, all the different types of aircrafts, be it uh, T6 or T38 at Shepard or F16, F35 at Luke or B52 at Minot. I think that's that's my favorite part. I, I actually really nerd out on that. 
Well, that's good. Yeah, that's, uh, I think a lot of people, you know, ha- having talked to a few companies, they enjoy that as well. Uh, and, you know, speaking from the military member previously, the, the I enjoyed it too, you know, getting to yeah. share that with you guys and getting to say, hey, these are, this is our job and this is what we really enjoy doing. And we, and we enjoy sharing that with people who are trying to help us and work with us and stuff. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's pretty good. It's, uh, it's always enjoyable there. Vader, uh, there's one more uh, going back to the point you mentioned about what helps companies kind of uh, get your message out about the efforts and such. Uh, so we work in an incubator in Austin. Essentially, it's called Capital Factory. Uh, it's based in Austin. So I do want to give a shout out to Capital Factory as well, because they do a really good job of uh, inviting leadership from Air Force, Navy, Army, uh, and they basically make the connection with the startups like ourselves who are working at Capital Factory. And because of that, also, we were getting a lot of face time with the leadership uh, at the Air, from the Air Force. And we got some really good connections because you know they host a lot of events in Austin. And uh, being in Austin helps uh, as well because there's a lot of uh, presence from Air Force. Uh, so that also helped us a lot. Yeah, I think that's one of the things, you know, Austin seems kind of like the the new Silicon Valley, at least for the defense defense exactly. uh, innovation, uh, just just because there's so many people there. And, and really, the benefits of Austin and AFWorks being there um, and Capital Factory, yeah. but the additional nice thing, and I don't know if you've, you've experienced this at all, but you're just down the road from Randolph which is 19th yeah. Air Force and AETC headquarters. Yeah. Uh, so if you do have meetings, if you have to just get there, that's an easy trip. Just drive down the road for about 90 minutes, and then you're you're at pretty much the innovation hub for Air Education Training Command in 19th Air Force. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. So, uh, so there's one program we haven't, we haven't talked about that, uh, we kind of worked on previously. Um, and then I'm just looking to get an update there. So on the airspace scheduler, uh, how's, how's that one going? Yeah. So, uh, we attended a couple of workshops. Those were again, going back to the innovation work groups that were hosted in Tucson by Artworks. Uh, that was last year in fall. And that allowed, basically, we had participation from all these uh, wings that share the BMGR air range in, in uh, Phoenix. So these are uh, Luke, and you have uh, Tucson, Arizona National Guard, and the and Davis Mountain. Uh, so these were the active wings participating. And we also worked with Holloman on the Wismar uh, use case. Uh, and we submitted uh, a proposal to AFWorks for direct to phase two. Uh, that was in the uh, previous cycle. And unfortunately, even though our proposal was selected based on technical merit, uh, we did not get funded because uh, AFWorks did not have enough funding in the last cycle. So as of now, uh, it's kind of stuck in that phase where uh, we are planning to resubmit that in the current cycle and see if this time we get lucky with funding. But right now, that effort is uh, currently stuck there. So what we are doing is we are covering some of the use case for airspace scheduling as part of our current initiative for squadron scheduling. So at least from the squadron scheduler's perspective, we are handling all of the airspace uh, scheduling as well. So we are preparing the request based on the mission you're flying for a given week and such. However, when it comes to the range management office uh, work, work uh, flows, that piece is something that we will be building once we get funded with the uh, airspace management project. Gotcha. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, it's, it's good that AFWorks says like, hey, we like this program. It's, it's yeah. not that we don't like the program. It's just we don't have funding. Yeah. Uh, one question I always have, and back me up if I'm misunderstanding this, but it, sound, it seems like the SIBR, so the Small Business Innovation Research, the way they award the contracts is in windows. So they open a window, yeah. they close it, then they open a new window, then they close it. And it seems like that happens March through July, I think. Uh, maybe August is when the final, kind of the open one ends. Uh, is that right? They, I think they change the cycle uh, every year. Okay. They sometimes have three to four cycles a year. Uh, this time, mm-hmm. this year, they skipped uh, the June cycle altogether. 
So I think I would I would say it's better to track that on the Cyber website uh, because they clearly show you all the uh, cycles that are open and what are the upcoming cycles. So they they do a pretty good job of educating people on you know what are the various programs that they can participate in and what are the timelines for for those as well. So I have to say, Affleck does a great job of you know helping companies like us understand when we are new to this process. Uh, they have a pretty good team of folks, you know, answering all our questions, hosting weekly, all hands meet. So uh, they they do a pretty good job with that. Well, that's good. The uh, so what do you do, kind of from your side? Obviously, when the cyber windows are open, everybody's trying to get paperwork yeah. done to get those submitted on time and correctly. But when all that closes, you know, say July, August, September mm-hmm. timeframe until March of the next year, what keeps you busy uh, aside from trying to build the programs? So I would say there are usually three to four cycles open. So we do try to submit proposal uh, in those cycles. And then besides SBIR, there are other uh, funding opportunities as well. For example, National Science Fund, uh, Fund has a program. Uh, uh, then Space also has a different program. Uh, so we do have uh, multiple avenues where you can you know, compete in these bids. And internally, so we don't rely on any third-party companies to write proposals for us. Uh, we do all of this in-house because we have a team of PhDs in operation research. Uh, so you know, writing proposals is something that we, we have done it organically. Uh, so that keeps us busy as well. Uh, we do write a fair amount of proposals. Uh, but yeah, besides that, what keeps me busy is I also split half of my time on the commercial sector. Uh, so that also helps. And I think it's really good for for bringing the innovation from commercial sector into DOD sector and vice versa. Uh, so that's something I enjoy doing a lot. Well, and I think that's that's probably a great business model of writing all your your contracts and your presentations in-house because yeah. nobody knows your program better than you guys. Yeah. And you know, no, you're going to be your own biggest advocate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you have you have that knowledge in your corporate, that's corporate knowledge. Now that's yeah. not, Hey, we paid this consulting company to do this for us. And yeah. then, in, you know, four months later we need something else. And you're like, well, we, we don't know how to do that. Still. So, <laughs> yeah. So that's, that's good. And I think that's one of the things that some people get worried about is, is leveraging innovation um, to, to kind of solve problems is, is the fact yeah. that they're like, well, I, I, I don't know how to fix it, you know, and, and some of our problem sets are so big that no pilot should ever be like, oh, my secondary duty is just programming yeah. a automated scheduler. Uh, so it, so we need to leverage people like yourselves and, and programs like uh, Ops Labs uh, to to generate these, these products. Um, but how do you think, so say we get, because like you said, the Cyber 3 is, is a one year test. Yeah. And I hope mm-hmm. the test goes extremely well for, for mm-hmm. me and all my friends. Uh, what do you say if, if at the end of that, you know, the air force is like, Hey, we can't find any money. Like how does, how does the air force lean on the program and use it and then find all the goodness out of it and then lose it? Like what, what is, what is the recourse there? I mean, at some point you just, you can't just be there without any contract. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think fortunately this momentum fund that has been approved will help us sustain it, right? So uh, that will help us prove the use case not only with Luke for F-16 and F-35 and Holloman, but also will help prove the use case for other MDS, for other uh, match comms. So our hope is over the next two years, that's kind of the, the window we are looking at where we want to roll out this application to as many wings as possible preferably different types of MDS, not just the same. That way we're able to prove that the system is not tailored for just one wing, uh, right? Uh, so that's kind of what we are looking at is next two years, roll it out to as many wings as possible. And part of the investment is also made by us. Uh, OpsLab is also putting our money and investment into it to fill the gaps where we don't find funding. For example, the cyber phase two helped us build the MVP, but we invested a lot of our own investments to kind of go beyond the basic uh, requirements that were asked for. So we kind of you know worked on the long term vision, build the product for the next five years of roadmap. Uh, so we are also putting some of the investment uh, because we firmly believe in this uh, direction ourselves. 
Yeah, nice. For SIBRs and a lot of uh, contracts, there's a lot of matching funds. Is that accurate that they that you actually get from uh, like a venture capital type organizations? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So uh, usually the process that startups follow is they would have some venture capitalists already interested in their initiatives. And let's say they are, they're adding some money into it. I'm just going to say $2 million or $3 million. They're investing in, this, in the startup. And then the startup is also executing Cyber Phase 2. Then they are able to show the investments made by the VC and show that as, as matching funds contributed into the project. And AFWX will then match the funding. It's usually one is to two ratio. So for every $2 invested by VC, they will match $1. Uh, so that's an avenue as well. Uh, we have also applied for that matching fund. So we were able to show the investment coming from the end users like Luke and such and show that as the matching fund uh, to get the tax buy funding. Uh, oh, that's awesome. We, I mean, we are still waiting for the results. We, we don't know that's going to get approved or not. But I think that's who, whoever kind of came up with the, the cyber program. I think they, they definitely had a good understanding because yeah. the, the reality of, hey, we don't have enough money to make this viable and desirable for these companies. Uh, so let's leverage the, you know, private equity and venture capital to help make this an enticing thing to actually get people who are really good in this space to build really good products. Because uh, there's a lot of amazing people that work in the military, and I don't think any of them do it for the for the big paycheck, you know, like yeah. that. That's not the area to make a lot of money, and I just don't don't think that money is there a lot of times in DoD funding. Uh, yeah. So it's it's definitely a smart way. So we we get as good of a product as we can hope for uh, exactly. in the space. Yep. Well, sweet Arun, do you have any uh, any parting shots or anything before we uh, before I let you go? Uh, just my contact information. If uh, anyone wants to get in touch, yeah. uh, my email address is uh, arun at opslab.com. Uh, that's, that's it. Sweet. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll add it to the uh, show notes. So if anybody wants, you can just scroll down uh, and then you'll be able to see uh, Arun's email there if you want to contact him. I'll also, um, I'll also uh, at you or... Uh, you or the company uh, on LinkedIn so people can find you guys that way. And then uh, please contact me at uh, vader at kodiakshack.com if uh, if you want to be on the uh, show or if you want to just provide feedback, good or bad, uh, let us know what we're doing uh, that you like and don't like so we can uh, we can work on that and make it better uh, for everyone involved. And then check out the kodiakshack.com uh, website and, uh, and you can see all these podcasts there or, uh, or our swag shop. Uh, Arun, thanks again for being on the show and, uh, and I appreciate it. Keep doing good work for all of us. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. See you. Mike Rowe here with a radical idea. If you want to see more companies make more things in this country, buy more things from more companies who make things in this country. I refer in this case to the incredible t-shirts, sweatshirts, blue jeans, and more made by my friends at American Giant. Everything American Giant makes is made in the United States. And right now, you can take 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com slash Mike. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike.